0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Amy Newell joins us from Boston, Massachusetts. Amy is a software engineer, speaker, writer, and is currently the VP of Engineering at ConvertKit. Amy Newell, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Amy, as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software?
1: Um, I had a really interesting journey thinking about this question in advance, and I I ended up thinking about the notion of of what is good enough and that that came originally from a, a psychologist d w winnicott who wrote about what what is good enough mothering i'm going to expand that to parenting because you know there's some there's always more you could be doing there's always more perfection that you could reach and there's a lot of pressure i think um and i see that in in software too nobody kind of wants to admit that there are messy bits in their code, right? They they think the messy bits shouldn't be there. And that's actually not possible or realistic. So if we come down off this like what what is perfectly maintainable software look like, then you end up in what's good enough, right? And I, I you know I think that the thing I wrote in in response to your question was uh, it shouldn't be driving engineers to drink who have to work in it. And I, I, I come back to this a lot, this idea of, of kind of what is the pain involved in, in having to work in a code base and in a system. At the same time, you need to be able to ship things to customers that that are providing value to those customers and and not causing those customers pain, too. So. Well-maintained software is software that is not causing every human who interacts with it a lot of pain compared to the value they are able to, to produce or get out of it. What that looks like in practice, I think, is really different depending on, on the, the people involved and the, the software involved and the domain. So that's about the most general thing I can say about it.
0: It's interesting as you're talking about you know, like we, we, there's always more we could do, and I'm thinking, you know, even if we take a taking a step out of the code space, and let's just talk about our living environments. Like, there's probably always more we could do to clean up our, our our living space, our our bedroom, or what, or organize our kitchen cabinets, or what have you. In my world, it's just, there's usually a lot more messes than there are, and it's usually like, well, I don't think it's valuable enough for me to spend that much time to reorganize my Tupperware again um, and find all the missing lids right now. I know they're there somewhere. I, maybe do you feel like there's something weird about the fact that we're working with software? It's somehow more perfectible because it's like this—the computers are this more organized space that we should be able to get things nice and tidy like that. What is it about software that's so different than the rest of our 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 spaces?
1: I don't know that I think there is something different about software than the rest of our spaces. I think that we are all at different levels of peace with with the messy reality and in different areas of our lives, right? So and you see this, I mean if you if you ask a bunch of engineers, you know, they're the about software particularly, right? They're at different levels of peace with the things that are are with where things are in a code base, right? Or in a system, you know. And kind of understanding for me as, a, as a, a leader, understanding when I'm when I'm working with with engineers and they're, you know, saying, oh, this is bad or no, it's fine. I need to understand both kind of what their general level of peace with imperfection is like as a baseline. I don't know if this is answering your question directly, but because people just have different levels of, of, of need for perfection or orderliness. And I also need to understand, well, is somebody saying this is not a problem because it's not a problem for them, right? I mean, the classic example is like, you know, an app engineer who's like, well, this isn't a problem. And an infra engineer who's like, I I get paged about it. So (laughs) that's a problem to me. A product manager who's like, no, we don't have to tear that backbone out of, you know, and an, you know a front end engineer who's like look this 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 is from like you know 2011 and I, nobody even knows what this is anymore and so yes we if it's something that is a feature that needs to be maintained right if it's not maybe you don't have to so i think the context is really important so it's both the context and kind of understanding people's background comfort with lack of order which is a property of the universe <laughs> <laughs> it is
0: it's it is fascinating to me just how, how how different people can think about that stuff but we all have to kind of coexist and work in the same shared space right and so you're it, it, whether that be code or just the infrastructure around the code or a team and there's a lot of I know there's some topics I'm looking forward to dig into that relate to some, some similar things that are more or less about software in particular itself changing course a little bit but What's your current take on the metaphor tech technical debt? Do you use it in your day-to-day work or, or or do you have strong opinions about about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, yes, I use it. Uh because there's a common underst- there is some common understanding about what it refers to that is an easy shorthand. Um, but I think that there are I think that a lot of stuff that's actually just maintenance work is, is, is put into the, it's easy to use tech debt as a category for everything that is purely technical, you know, seems purely technical rather than customer focused or feature focused. You know, there's actually a lot of kind of purely, sorry, you can't see, you're not going to see my air quotes in, (laughs) in a podcast, purely technical work, Some of which is normal maintenance, which is about uh, keeping up with things. You know, we're doing a rails upgrade right now um, because we need to, because the version of rails we're on is going to be end of life. So (laughs) it's time. You know, that's not really tech debt. That's just maintenance. (laughs) I think another the, the metaphor of debt is... Also even though I use it challenging again because it's not all debt and also because a lot of it is more like I don't know consumer credit debt than it is like a mortgage right it's like you clicked use a firm and so it looks like you got something you you got something for free basically <laughs> but it adds up and you still owe that money at some point The point I'm trying to make is something about like impulse purchases leading to debt, which is different from saying at the beginning of a project, we are explicitly going to take on this debt and we know we have to go back and fix it. It's like when you're moving really fast and you just end up, you know, sort of like clicking buy. I do this a lot. Just buy, 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 buy without noticing that it's adding up.
0: As someone that's in a leadership position, What sorts of things do you see come up when people are trying to describe technical debt or discuss it and you help them um, kind of understand maybe there's like a different distinction about that or how they raise topics about technical debt with like other stakeholders or their teammates?
1: I just want to make a general disclaimer here that uh, I've only been at ConvertKit for two months now. So (laughs) most of my most of my thinking about this uh, or talking about it will be sort of pre my, my current team. As a leader, I think it's incredibly important to have a lot of trust in both my managers and my senior ICs, right? So baseline, when someone comes to me and says, this is a problem, or this is gonna be a problem, I want to hear that. And I especially want to hear this is going to be a problem because I want to get ahead of that before it's a raging fire that is causing us and our customers issues. The things that I ask when I'm told those things is sort of what are the problems we're seeing? Like, what is the problem? Who is experiencing the pain of the problem? You know what is the solution space that w- we ought to explore <laughs> in order to resolve the problem. You know it can be quite easy. I think for engineers to sometimes leap to a sol- a solution that you know pr- is is interesting or seems valuable to them and may or may not actually be solving the the problem that they are concerned about. So then it's, you know, I always say I'm not making any technical choices at this point because my hands have not been on keyboard writing code for a while now. But I ask the stupid questions like, okay, well, so if we did this solution, then what new problems would we have? Right. And then, you know, trying to think about, okay, well, what is the risk if we do not, what is the business risk that we if we do not do this work right because not all not all tech debt actually carries the same business risk
0: how do you how do you help quantify that or, or calculate that in some way is it just based off of like people's general uh, rough estimates at that point in time or like how do you go through that process of like measuring and also just like the impact or risk is it or kind of like a gut feeling that you know they the person that is bringing it up might have at that point in time
1: that's a very good question and i don't think i have a great answer to it particularly when you're thinking about future risk right people's appetite for future risk is just different you know i don't like for example knowing that like thinking, oh, if there's a security hole discovered, then I I won't get a patch for that. Right. (laughs) Like, (laughs) You know, something that risks a major outage in the future, because that a major outage can can, you know, in some cases be a business destroying event. How do you calculate the risk of that thing happening? You do the best you can. Is it Is it perfect? No, it's never going to be perfect. And some people will be like, well, I judge that risk to be different. Or my job, I think, to to get kind of a variety of different estimates about what those risks could be or for a thing that's not a risk. It's just like a drag on velocity. Right. Trying to understand. I honestly think the best metric for what what things are really drags on velocity is how I I think I said it in my questionnaire like when you look at this code do you lose your will to live and then you have to like get your will to live back before you can even do anything in it you know like how much pain is everyone feeling hi there do
0: you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargoncom referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. You know, one of the things that you had mentioned was like, I think you even used an example where you mentioned like backbone, like maybe and just making some, I mean, I reckon a, in the same framework, typically, I'm, I'm in the Rails space, Ruby on Rails space myself, and work a lot of maintaining a lot of different types of projects over the years as a consultancy. And I've had different people on the team over the years where we're like, oh, we're you know, this project doesn't feel like it's being well maintained because it's using something like Backbone, and that's not really evolving much in the in the in, you know, and like everybody's using this now, like oh, you know, React or whatever, you know, you know. I remember having these conversations a number of years ago. And I mean, this interesting thing where it's like there's part of me that always wonders, like when developers are concerned about having to maintain maintain pieces of software that aren't necessarily like the underlying. Like, I think the backbone may still be having updates. I actually, I don't even know. It's just not in, right? At least in our sphere of frameworks end frameworks that we're potentially using in our applications. And so like, we have to replace this. And there's always this part of me that's like, is this a thing? Is this actually like a technical debt problem? Is it that, I mean, because at the end of the day, it's like, it's JavaScript. We can all work with JavaScript. It's just, they have a certain pattern about how they did things. We have to switch it. As we bring in new people, they're like, I don't know what this is. And it becomes, you know, this keeps, this becomes further and further away from anyone that remembers how that all kind of worked together in the first place. But then there's a certain level of, I've always wondered, is there a little bit of resume driven development, if we're not using more recent and up-to-date tools then i might be falling behind in my own professional career goals where i'm not going to be hireable at some other company that is using the latest and greatest because i've been stuck maintaining something that you know hasn't been in vogue in like a decade you know so have you seen anything like that over the years
1: i think that's an amazing question because yeah, especially when you start talking about front-end frameworks, because the the, the the JavaScript world moves at a, 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 an alarming pace. I get exhausted thinking about it. I, I was never. I I was always a back-end developer. More like, give me a nice query plan. Don't don't make me like do anything with JavaScript. <laughs> but as a leader, of course, I have to think about these things. Yeah, so. I think that it becomes a problem that, that if you have a piece of code that is using an, an older, less popular framework, it becomes a problem that needs to be solved. Some different things could make that happen, right? Generally speaking, a code base that has 15 different old, you know, no longer current frameworks in it. Which is, I mean, 15 is an exaggeration, but it's not uncommon in an old rail system to see, oh, well, this piece here and then that piece, and then we thought we were going to do X, but we we stopped that. And that lack of uniformity eventually does sort of cause just a lot of drag, particularly onboarding new people. So I I do think that the the drag is, is... a real issue. If it's if it's one tiny piece of a system that's not really like in active development or you know used much, maybe it's not the right choice to prioritize that. Right. I think the 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 priority becomes, all right, this is we need to make a lot of changes here. And it's like, well we're not gonna and everywhere else we're using React, but there's this backbone we didn't touch. Okay, we need to touch it now. It doesn't make sense to leave it in backbone, right? And I'm not—I picked backbone out of you know the air. <laughs> but the question to circle back to your question is: is there some resume-driven development going on there? Sometimes, yeah, I think people do get worried that they will get stuck. In their career, probably not in this this current hiring market, <laughs> um, I would hope that that no one is especially worried in 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 this hiring market, but broadly, I think that from my perspective of like thinking about the risk that that technical debt can have people leaving or people not coming because they don't want to work on old things that are like not advancing their sort of learning and development in the more recent technologies is genuinely a concern. And in a business that is a software business, uh, that is like a very important strategic issue is, is can you attract and retain your engineers?
0: Right. It's, it's an often, I think, hard thing for, especially if uh, maybe the organization, like if they have a piece of software that they built and it's not necessarily like their core part of their business in some ways, it's like a, uh, a lot of our clients, for example, are, they're not like SaaS products. They're companies, like large organizations and they built something and they had like a couple of people internally maintaining it for a number of years. And then it went down to like one person that was still there and they were there by themselves for a long time. And then they're like, I miss working with other people. So they leave, and then the company's like, "What do we do now?" And then, you know, we're like, "Whoa!" Like, I could see why it was hard for anyone else to ever join and that person and and want to take over the owning owning the project because it was just like, it kind of fell into this certain state of like, keep the lights on and it's like it's like a, on a it has like an oxygen mask and stuff like that and like and it was not easy to get in there and, and, you know, make sense of the applicant, the platform and, 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 really wrap it all around your head because it was built by a team. And then it went down to like one person and they had a lot of stuff in their head and then it kind of, you know, and they, they walk out the door one day and then there's no like historical context to provide there. So those teams are struggling to hire people to come in and, and like take over those projects because they didn't really invest in that. And I don't, know what they organizations could have done differently necessarily because can't go back in time. But like our advice to them tends to be like this is a you're gonna have to spend a lot more time and energy prioritize taking care of these things because it sounded like you your team wasn't able to communicate how they need to prioritize cleaning up some stuff that's like older stuff because it's gonna be really difficult for someone to come in and and and, and maintain that now. So one of the topics that I was also looking to dig in with you Amy was around you know thinking about the engineers' career path options. in particular, you know you were a software developer, individual contributor and went into a, you know down the management leadership path at some point. How do you help guide your own engineers to kind of decide on those like different paths and I, I remember a couple of years ago feel like having conversations where it always felt like you know some engineers always thought, well eventually I'll move into management. But then I'd ask them, like, well, do you still expect a code? And they're like, oh, yeah, obviously. But then I'm like, is that actually the case anymore? And, and do you think it's also really important for an engineering manager to have been an individual contributor before? Or do you ha- how, how do you help people kind of make sense of that in especially in, in, your kind of, in your role that you've had over the number, last few years?
1: So I think it is – I do think that those are, are relatively different skill sets, Although I think the more senior and I see you come to be, the more important some of the skills that are also important manager skills are. You need to be able to influence, you need to be able to work across teams in, within the product and engineering org and across teams uh, you know, across the org, with marketing, with sales, um, with ops, with everybody. So there isn't, in my view, a really good viable career path for an IC who just wants to, to to just stay in there in a hole and write code all day. Right. In in my world, you you kind of max you you reach a ceiling uh, because at a certain point your your impact is going to be bigger if you're able to to influence and mentor and things like that. That said I do think that the skills of man- that there are skills of management that 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 many engineers are not going to want to focus on and acquire you know having really hard performance conversations writing performance reviews <laughs> there's a lot of stuff like that that manager stuff that I think a lot of ICs don't want and a lot of people do want to keep coding and I sometime in between my last job and and this job I talked to a recruiter from some company and, and he said, well, everybody, including our CEO still writes code. Uh, you would have to take a coding test for this job. And I was like, writing code would be a, like, you would, if you paid me to write code at all, it would be a waste of my time and your money. <laughs> that is not the best use of my energy at this time. And so I, I, I think the, the issue is that engineering has like a, the idea of being technical. I wrote a whole blog post on this, but the idea of being technical is, is like the, the pinnacle, right. Um, of, of engineering. And so it's sort of this like toxic masculinity thing where it's like, I still write code, even though I'm the CEO. And it's like, Should you be? And also, do you realize that you're causing problems? Because if you drop a PR on some team as a CEO, what are they supposed to do with that? Like the power dynamic is broken. So that's my opinion about like senior level people still writing code, particularly in large organizations. Sorry to circle back. to how do I help people understand their career paths? There must be a good viable IC career path for people. Otherwise, they're going to feel pushed into management because they want to continue to feel they're advancing in their career. I also think that there needs to be some space for people who really want to do a small amount of management and also still be really, you know, involved in sort of the day-to-day technical work. Maybe they're not writing code as much, but they're they're more of like a tech lead style. And then I think that as you take on more and more management responsibilities where you're purely a manager, I think you have to have been an IC for some amount of time at least in the context that I need managers for the 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 size of companies that I've been at and the kind of work I need managers to be able to do, because it's just helpful to have to have that context already and to know the stupid questions to ask. Right. And, you know, even as a a VP, you know, I came I've been in rail shops for the last 15 years now. And so I, I know what I'm likely to find and I know you know, I know the ecosystem and it's really helpful to just have that context, even though I'm, I'm never going to say we're doing X because I think it's the best, right?
0: Right. But I, I, thanks for kind of digging into that. It's, it's, I've, I've heard different people kind of talk about that differently because I've seen scenarios where I remember a couple of years ago, my own company, we were looking for an engineering manager and there were, I had this really I, I kind of got to this point where I was like, I really feel like we should bring in someone that's just a really, really incredible engineer or man, I mean manager that can work with the team and be kind of like, work, work be there for them. But I was like, I don't care if they were a software developer in the past. Like that part didn't feel like, I, there was a part of me that was really wanting to like not make that a priority. And there were people on the, t- you know, engineers on our team that were, because I was trying to get myself out of, because I was doing management of those people at, the, at that point in time. And I was like, I feel like I need to give them someone that's not going to be trying to like. I I worried that I was, and maybe it's my own little, my own little personal challenge I was dealing with as, having been a you know a developer for my, so many years myself. And when people would bring up topics, it was it was always really hard for me to not be like, well, have you tried this or what about this? And like then I'm starting to feel like I'm okay, I'm like pitching, potential solutions that they may or may not be asking for, and I, I, it's something I've you know I've had to work on to like, you know like I'm I'm sure. Well, I'm a solution, but I'm, I, I like to solve problems. And so when people bring problems, I want to solve them. And like being like, it's, it's taken me a while, like a good number of years to get better at pausing, letting, you know, like letting people talk, trying to ask those stupid questions and not try to drive people towards anything. But I was like, part of me wondered like, would it be more helpful for people to have someone that's just going to ask questions, but not necessarily need to know so low level of a detail that they could prevent the team from kind of solving some of their own problems. Um, and so, But I, I had engineers on my team that were definitely raising their eyebrows at the idea of that it could possibly be someone that wasn't a contributor, or like a software developer themselves prior to that. We, we ended up hiring someone that was a software developer. So I don't know. If, I never got to test that theory out yet. But I was just kind of – I'm always curious about how people think about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's one of the skills that you need to develop when you move from kind of being, you know, IC work to management is, um, you know, moving from – solving, to advising, to coaching. And that's a journey. <laughs> um, and I don't want to say no, it is never possible for, for an engineering manager who, who hasn't been an engineer to be successful. I, I, I hate blanket statements like that. I'm not making that blanket statement. I can say in smaller organizations where every hire counts, I think about the value that I've found in joining an organization and knowing what a Rails upgrade entails, knowing that, you know, knowing about Elasticsearch, all of these things that, you know, are sort of common, being able to focus as a manager on the, the, the managing context (laughs) and the business context and the customer context rather than, sort of having to, to like load in all of this unfamiliar technical context for myself, you know, and I, I, I think i I feel that particularly acutely because as a woman in engineering leadership, I think that uh, the default is that people will assume that I am not capital T technical. Again, I, I despise that word and so it, it it has been helpful i think for my career as well to like stay in a in a domain where i i already where i'm not like trying to read up on you know elm late at night to keep up right right <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> is that the new hot thing i don't know uh, i can i can't keep up either you know it's interesting uh, i would always bother like i don't like the term thinking like i'm like what who doesn't work in tech like name me when did dentists stop being tech like i don't know like when are our plumbers not working with technology it feels like a weird thing to encompass this all and especially now where like every organization seems to have software doing something for them whether that they're they've outsourced that and built that or they've purchased some software that they're using every department's interacting with some sort of technology but it seems like i don't i don't understand why that's become like this thing that it doesn't seem like we can get it feels like a way to like say, like, we're in a group or a club together, I feel like when you get into programming languages or certain frameworks, there's conferences around these topics, and so we can all come together, like, oh, we all work with Ruby on Rails, but we're all working in vastly different industries, right? And so, it's just, like, this weird thing that, like, I work in tech, and it's, like, that doesn't feel like it says anything about what you do, like, at all, because who does it? Plumbers work with technology, so... I don't know. It's, it's like all of almost all of humanity inter- interacts with some sort of technology. It just anyway, that's my own little soapbox.
1: <laughs> can I can I give you my thirty second explanation of of what I think is going on there? Yeah. So first, there is I think a difference for people who are working in sort of the tech industry, especially as engineers, versus what other people's experiences of like finding a job, for example, is like. But second of all, I think within and software engineering in particular, the word technical is is not a word that means something. It's a word that does something. Um, uh, I can go into a whole I will not take you down the side, the side route about the difference between words that mean or do. Well, I can. You know what? When you in a wedding, when you say I do those words accomplish an act. The word "technical" in engineering is used to make something happen, and it is to make is it is to hi- put people in a hierarchy. Oh, you know the the kernel hackers, you know, and then if you're if you're working on WordPress, right, you know, you're you're less technical, and I so I really I, it doesn't have any meaning. It's just used to 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 order people.
0: We'll be back with our interview with Amy in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media and our writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you can give us a shout. Also, do you know someone that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now let's get back to our interview with Amy Newell. mentioned drag in your team are there data metrics that you find valuable to track in that or is that kind of based off of like the what you're hearing from people on your team how do you kind of measure that
1: I feel like no matter what I say someone's going to be like you're crazy why do you do it that way right I know a lot of people love to look at, like, every tiny little piece of, of kind of the development process and see where the drag is, right? And I it is not that I believe there is no value to that, right? I start with, are people satisfied, you know, like a, a, an NPS here, right? Like, a, a, how do people feel about working in the code, right? How do people feel about what the, what is being delivered, okay, so if everybody, if people are feeling bad, right, oh, we're not shipping fast enough, you know, or, ugh, I hate working in this, it feels bad, you know, and customers are not happy, (laughs) then you start to look at sort of, all right, well, what are the things that are, that are, like, holding people up, right, and then looking at, oh, okay, well, we see that PRs are, are, you know, hanging out in review too long, okay, Although, honestly, if you do a bunch of, you know, one-on-ones, people are going to be like, well, I can't get my PRs reviewed in less than three days, right? It's not like people don't know this. <laughs> and then you say, okay, well, we, you know, as an organization, we need to impress upon people the necessity of, of reviewing PRs more quickly, right? That's a... I, I take a very human-focused approach to ad- addressing those issues. And, you know, I mean, since 2020... I think the thing, you know, everyone I talk to is like, Whoa, why are we shipping so much slower, right? And it is <laughs> there's no metric that's gonna, you know, that we need to explain that. There's there's a lot of fires, right? Like I woke up this morning and looked at the news, And, you know, it didn't make my day go super, you know, I'm not feeling great. And, you know, a lot of people with uteruses in the U.S. woke up and are like, "Mm." it's the, it's the, you know, there's a constant, you know, there's a war, there's still a pandemic, you know, people's daycares are always, you know, closing because someone got COVID. The level of productivity that people are able to have these days is different. And I think that that to start going down rabbit holes of what's holding us up in that context is maybe there is something we can move. I think people need to keep the broader context in mind.
0: No, I, I can appreciate that. Um, there was a couple of years ago, like a couple months into the pandemic, we had been working on a pretty large project and there was a point where the team was starting to like, we were running blade on a project and but it was also the first month or two of the pandemic kind of aligned with that. And there was this conversation in a retrospective where like, I don't think I've heard the client even reference the pandemic or COVID once and their pressure that they're putting on us has been the same the whole time. And like our lives have been like turned upside down. And, and there was this like, Oh, that's a really interesting observation to like take in there and be like, we need to have a conversation with the client about this. Like, Things are not normal, right? So, we're not necessarily needing to say, like, we need a lot of extra time or anything. It's just like, there's, we, we need to, like, reset some parameters here. So, I think that it's healthy for teams to try to, like, navigate that. But I don't know that everybody feels super comfortable bringing those stuff up early and often um, so that they can, you know, they could maybe talk about it with their manager or what have you. But I think it, it took a while for that to come up as a thing. And it was like, oh my gosh, I wish we had had this conversation like a month ago. So, we could have maybe avoided a little bit of the pain that people were feeling or, Absorbing through that whole experience, but having said that, okay, a couple of quick last things I wanted to touch on with you, Amy. So, could you tell our audience a little bit about your newsletter, Amy Writes Words? What topics are you typically covering in it?
1: Oh, sure. So, um, and I will admit that since I, I'm still new as as um, in my role as VP of Engineering at ConvertKit, uh, it's it's been a little spottier. It's a lot of things. I try to have something about, you know, engineering or leadership at some point. I talk a lot about the context of the world today and how everybody's stressed out and feels like everything's burning all the time. So I try to I try to offer people hope and to address, I think, the 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 stress that people are feeling at work and politically and to use that use the newsletter as a a, means of talking about that. I also talk about mental health a lot, although I also have this entirely separate newsletter that's just mental health tips. <laughs> I'll,
0: I'll include links to both of that, those for, for everybody. And is uh, is ConvertKit hiring at the moment?
1: ConvertKit sure is hiring at the moment.
0: By the time we get this up, um, I'll assume you're still hiring, but we'll definitely include a link to like your careers page and stuff like that for the audience, for those listening. Uh, would that primarily be Ruby on Rails developers there or...
1: Sure. Um, Ruby on Rails and uh, React. So we have some roles that are different mixes of those depending on what people's interests are.
0: Awesome. The question I like to ask all of my guests is, is there a non, non-software non development book that you find yourself recommending to peers on a regular basis?
1: Yes. Uh, thanks for the feedback. I can't remember the author offhand, but it's about how to accept and process feedback that other people have offered
0: awesome i've not heard of that one yet so i'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for everybody as well so and where can li- listeners best outside of uh, amy Wright's words where else can people follow your thoughts and ruminations about software development and all these other types of topics online
1: sure twitter is the best place i am uh, for the moment anyways i am a, <laughs> a heavy tweeter
0: well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Amy. Thanks so much for talking shop with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for letting me talk about things that weren't necessarily about maintainable software.
0: It, it's all interconnected. We're talking about the human side of things, not just the uh, the code. And I think that's that those are the topics I do enjoy talking about the most. So great. Thanks so much again.
1: Thank you.